1: I love this time of year. Nature feels like it's kicking up a gear. On my morning runs, I see celandines in February. They just kind of spangle the grass and the verges, and then as March gathers pace, the occasional stars become a cloud of yellow flowers shining out above deep green leaves, and that fills me with hope and joy for the season ahead. And while spring is that magical time where everything seems to vibrate with life, It's also, of course, a particularly hectic time in the garden. It's the season of sowing and growing all sorts of veg, from peas and cucumbers to onion sets and asparagus, of planting potatoes, tomatoes and summer flowering bulbs, pruning rose bushes, feeding hungry shrubs, and the list goes on. So today, with that in mind, we'll be exploring some of the big spring to-dos. RHS chief horticulturist Guy Barter, you know him as my co-presenter, will take us to his allotment in Surrey, giving us a tour of his current Grow Your Own projects.
2: There is one secret weapon that I have here in my allotment for the hungry times in April and May before the summer crops start again.
1: Flower farmer and author Rachel Siegfried is back on the show to share her tips on creating beautiful and balanced floral arrangements in time for Easter.
3: So you see how I'm building it up in layers, like layers of paint, like layers of drawing onto a piece of paper.
1: And finally, we'll be digging up royal roots. Fiona Davison, head of libraries and exhibitions at the RHS, will speak with us about the ways different members of the royal family have influenced gardening trends throughout the years.
4: What's interesting about prince albert and in fact all royal gardeners is then seeing how what they did with endless resources trickled down and became more accessible and adapted
1: you're listening to gardening with the rhs with me gareth richards guy started his allotment in the mid-90s and over the course of almost 30 years he's completely transformed the plot back when he took it up it was just a sea of couch grass. And now it's full of a staggering variety of fruits and veg. Calettes, onions, shallots, peas, cabbage, garlic, black currants, gooseberries, to name but a few. Not to mention the 100 kilos of potatoes he grows each year. Quite, quite the plot. So without further ado, let's head to Surrey and check in with Guy.
2: Well I'm Guy Barter, I'm the Chief Horticulturalist at the Royal Horticultural Society and I'm standing in my allotment in Woking, and we're starting here at the beginning of the year. Easter's just around the corner. There's a slight bit of spring in the air. Behind us, you can hear the golf course with a machine doing something to the grass and the trains whiz by, and there's various allotment holders making merry shouts in the background. So it's all busy here on my allotment. It's a standard allotment, 250 square meters, and it's mostly bare at this time of year. I'm still harvesting some carrots and some parsnips, a bit of kale, a few cabbages, lots of leeks, and these will carry on. But as soon as the weather turns really aprilly and warm, they'll all shoot off and start forming seed pods or start rotting. And that'll be the end of my crops that I planted last year. And I have to do it all over again. However, there is one secret weapon that I have here in my allotment for the hungry times in April and May before the summer crops start again. And that is my asparagus bed and i'm just spreading some composted material over the top of it to keep down weeds and feed the asparagus so covered in plastic sheeting which i'm not happy about but it's the only way to keep the deer and pigeons off are lots of carrots and parsnips that should come up in early april and then there's a large bed of early salads these are things like lettuces radishes, baby beetroots, finger carrots, salad onions, spinach, all growing away underneath their covering, and they're gonna be lovely, fresh, succulent produce in June when you really appreciate it most. And then right beside where I'm standing, again, covered in an insulating layer of fleece, is the early potatoes. Early potatoes are very frost sensitive, but of course, the earlier you have potatoes, the sooner you can start eating them. So they've gone in, it's a risk, They'll grow, they're probably already emerging now, I can't quite see, and they'll be covered and protected against frost right the way through till early May. This season, as mid-spring approaches, it's the time to get the ground ready. When I started out, I dug this plot every year and turned it over, mixed in manure and raked it all level in the spring. Nowadays, that seems a lot of work, and also we've become increasingly aware of the importance of soil health. So a large part of the plot, nearly half, is covered in what we call a cover crop. And they cover the ground all winter, protecting the soil and building up organic matter. They're also much better for biodiversity than bare soil. So there's a win-win situation until you get to spring when you've got to terminate the cover crops, which can be quite hard work, but it's worth doing to get the ground in good condition and economise on fertilisers and manures. The cost of a load of well-rotted composted stable manure here is now over 400 pounds, which is rather a lot, so I rely on my cover crop to boost the soil organic matter along with plenty of home composting of all the allotment wastes. And the cover crop that I use almost exclusively is Italian ryegrass, a variety called Westerwalds. It's grown by farmers for their cows and in southern England it grows all winter. And looking at it now, it's about eight inches tall and a very bright green. It has no fertilizer, it's just its natural vigor as it's sucking up the nutrients that would otherwise be washed out of the soil by the winter rains. So the next job will be to turn this cover crop into planting areas for the cabbage family things. I grow a lot of Brussels sprouts and cabbages and kale and cauliflowers. Moving on, we're coming to the, the onion and shallot bed. This allotment, like so many allotments, is riddled with root disease and one of the worst diseases is onion white rot. So by practicing a very careful rotation, I hope I can keep the disease down and manage to harvest a crop. So in front of us we have 20 centimetre, 8 inches tall, overwintered onion plants. They should produce bulb onions sometime in June, July. But these kind of onions don't keep, so they only grow enough to keep us going until October. Now we're in the onion bed. Let me tell you how we avoid disease by crop rotation. First of all, I plant potatoes. They have a cover crop afterwards over the winter. Then I plant all my other crops, actually, all the things like courgettes and pumpkins and French beans and runner beans. And then when they're finished, I plant my cabbage family crops. And then it all comes around again when the cabbages are finished with planting of potatoes. So there's a three year break between each crop, which will let the disease organisms die out. We can have a look at the soft fruit. So now we've moved on to the shady end of the plot, next to the tall oak trees, through which you might be able to hear the wind whistling at the side of the golf course that lies behind us. And because vegetables don't grow very well at the shady end of the plot, I planted it with soft fruit. And the soft fruit is just coming into flower now. We have a load of red currants that are in full flower. Happily, their leaves come out. So even if frost strikes, the leaves should protect them against the worst of the frost. And then around them are lots of black currants and gooseberries that will also be flowering very quickly. And I always like to see lots of the soft fruit flowering because they're very good for the bees. And the other thing is that because there's a line of tall oak trees at the back of the allotment, The bird life here is fantastic. And of course, all those birds need something to eat. And what better to feast on than the pests, the aphids and the other bugs that live on my plot. So we try and maintain a sort of balance here. So let's go and see how the peas are doing. They were sown about a month ago. And of course, this time of year, it's very cold and they take a while to come up. I don't really approve of poking around seed beds, but I need to see how they're doing. So we're gonna go and have a look at them. So we'll just pull back the Envirotech plastic covering. Oh, there we can just see the first little peas coming up. They're really just popping up from the soil at the moment. You can see a little green hook shaped leaf. And if you go down, you can see a few little seeds in there that have germinated. Unfortunately, peas, are very susceptible to rots, and these early sowings are always quite risky. Sowings made now, when the soil's warmed up quite a lot, should be very reliable, and I often have to re-sow the early sowings. But if you don't venture something, you won't gain anything. So that's pretty much a tour of my allotment at this early time of year. I hope we'll come back in July and be able to gaze at the abundance, fingers crossed, but right now these are the kind of things that you can be getting on with in your own allotment or vegetable garden. The first thing to do is to get the soil ready by whatever means you like, whether it's if you're a no-dig gardener you'll spread compost, if you're a dig gardener you'll quickly fork over the soil and rake it level. And if you're a kind of gardener who's in between, then you might just loosen the soil lightly and get it ready with a hoe. Rake it so it's nice and level, so you can sow seeds at the optimum depth and get sowing those hardy seeds. I think that most people would be very happy to grow some lettuces, some radishes, salad onions, carrots, beetroot, parsnips, leeks, spinach, chard, to name but a few. Get those started. There's always going to be some losses with seeds, so... Sow about three seeds for every plant that you expect, and you're probably going to lose two seeds to one cause or another, but the third seed should come up and be exactly what you need. And then, of course, if you've got a greenhouse at home or a polytunnel on your allotment, you can start sowing and raising tender plants. The allotment holders in this plot are mostly Italians, and they grow a very great many peppers and aubergines and tomatoes, and they're just sowing the seeds in their polytunnels now and they'll have a a good crop, they always do. Onion sets, shallots, and it's still just time for garlic, can also be planted out. And early potatoes, as long as you're not going to, in too frosty an area, and as long as you can protect them from frost by drawing some soil over them on a frosty night, it's worth a go. The main crop potatoes, you can leave those until the middle of April, and then you'll have less sleepless nights worrying about the frost.
1: What a plot, and it's something I can only aspire to. Hearing Guy talk about peas made me really want to try a variety called Alderman, which I've been meaning to grow for years. It's a really old-fashioned one that gets to about six feet tall, so you grow it on a wigwam, a bit like runner beans. But also, it ripens over quite a long time, so you can just pick a few peas here and there, rather than some of the commercial ones, which are developed for agriculture, where they all crop at once and they finish. This will give you fresh peas for months on end if you look after it, so I'm really interested to try that like Guy, I think it's really important to always be open to new ways of doing things and new ways of growing. One thing that I'm going to be trying this year is Japanese hand tools. So a Japanese hand hoe, for example, or a Hori Hori knife. And these are brilliant tools for weeding. And I'm determined this year to kind of change the way that I weed, actually, because Some years I feel like weeds really get away with me on the plot and actually I think if you turn it into almost like a mindfulness practice where every time you go maybe just do five or ten minutes and that will really add up and you will win the war on the plants that want to take over that you don't want. So I'm really really keen to get out there. Of course it's our prime planting season but there are still many ways we can reap the fruits of our labours. One of these is creating floral arrangements with your favourite spring flowers, which is what Rachel Siegfried is back on the show to discuss. As a brief refresher, Rachel Siegfried is owner of Green Gorgeous, a flower farm that focuses on using perennials and shrubs in arrangements. And she's also the author of the Cut Flower Source book, which is all about growing flowers for cutting. She was on the show in early March to discuss sowing perennials that will bloom in their first year. And now she'll be sharing her particular philosophy on how to build the perfect bouquet.
3: It's just when you have flowers inside that you've picked from your garden, you just take a bit more time to really look at them. And often when you're in the garden, well, for me, I'm too busy rushing around. You know, imagine something just sitting on your desk or your kitchen table and you study that flower in detail and really appreciate it just for itself, for its character. That to me is just one of the most beautiful, simple things. I mean, at this time of year in the spring, I'm looking at the hedgerows. I'm waiting for the first flush of blossom. I'm looking for the first emergence of deciduous leaves like hazel, hornbeam, hawthorn. I'm just trying to capture the moment. And it's not just spring. Spring can be divided into three, early, mid, late, and they all have their own character. They all have different things to pick. So how I like to build an arrangement, I have what I call the elements, the elements of an arrangement. And I break it down into four. We've got framework, we've got focal, supporting and accent. And I actually build my arrangement in these four stages. Now, framework is really your foundation. That's what I start with. And those are your woody branches. So that's where I would be cutting from my hedges. Things like the hornbeam, the hawthorn, the hazel. They have lovely kinky characterful shapes. So they create a lovely open space. Lots of interesting lines for the rest of your flowers to follow. It's like drawing. It's like painting with flowers, with the lines of the woody stems. So they sort of go out in different directions and create an interesting, often quite asymmetrical shape. Once I've got those, I really love to follow on with some blossoming branches. And that can be anything from something like a cherry plum, which is just starting to break into blossom now, right through to later in the spring, when we're looking at things like crabapple, blossom, apple blossom, things like that. Or it could be a flowering shrub, an early flowering shrub like spirea or ribes. Anything with a sort of bare stem with flowers on is very special. So the blossoming branches follow similar lines to the hazel and the hornbeam. And that really is my framework set. So you see how I'm building it up in layers, like layers of paint, like layers of drawing onto a piece of paper. But everything is always very asymmetrical, characterful. There's lots of movement. It's why I love to use garden materials because they're not ramrod straight, which is what you find if you go down and buy from the flower market or a florist's. They have been grown to be quite straight and that does not make... In my eyes, this is obviously just my opinion, but it doesn't make a very interesting dynamic arrangement. So the next thing I like are the supporting flowers. And I tend to use a lot of hellebore. And that's really one of the first perennials to flower. And I have to wait until they've started to form little seed pods because they will not hold no matter what you do, searing with boiling water or anything like that they will not hold until they have started to form seed and their stems have started to ripen. And they sort of have taken on a slightly muddy green appearance in their petals, their sepals, which gives them a very earthy look, which is lovely in contrast to the flamboyant colours of the tulips, the kind of, I suppose, more flamboyant focal flowers that you're going to add in next. So, yes, tulips... If we're talking perennial, though, I would favor narcissi. I've got patches of narcissi that have been in for 10 years and I haven't really had to do a single thing to them. And that's what we're talking about here, low maintenance. Some of the double forms or the beautiful single poeticus pheasant's eye types are beautiful to use. And they're your focal flowers. They're the things that are to draw the eye and you don't need very many of them. You might only put seven in. Odd numbers are always quite a good guide. And then just to finish off, the last thing I do is the accent element. An accent is something that's quite fine and wispy and dancing. It just creates a little bit of, what's the word, a sort of punctuation mark in your arrangement. And I mean, in the summer months, it could be a grass. Grass Grasses are great for accents. Climbers are also really good. I might have a little bit of honeysuckle at this time of year. We have one called Lonicera Americana, American honeysuckle, which is very early. It might just be in bud, but that's fine with me. It's got lovely shape. It tumbles over the side of the bowl. And then I might just put in a few fritillaria, just a few of those dotted in Dancing around the other flowers as just the finishing touch to the arrangement. When you're choosing all these elements, they all need to connect with each other. They need to have a conversation with each other. And that could just be a colour. You know, I quite like harmonious colours in my arrangements. Even if it's just in the stem or the edge of a leaf. As long as there's something that talks to the other element, then it will flow and it will be very nice on the eyes and they'll just move around this arrangement everything has its own space room for the butterflies is what people used to say and that's that's really important so you can appreciate each element spring is here we've got things starting to blossom in the hedgerows in your gardens so why not just get outside pick a few things have a go It doesn't need to last. It can just be a fleeting moment of beauty, but it's actually really fun just to have a go at creating something and enjoying it for just a few days.
1: Thanks there to Rachel. Her beautiful and detailed book, The Cut Flower Book, is out now. Head to our show notes to find a link. Rachel talked about You know how when you pick flowers from your garden you really have a chance to study and appreciate them and I think that's such a valuable point it's so wonderful to be able to almost distill the essence of a border or a part of your garden into a vase and bring it up close and just really enjoy it and it captures that particular moment in time when these things are all in flower together and that's that has to be a wonderful thing. And of course, your homegrown flowers can't be anything but seasonal, and that's something you don't get when you buy a bouquet from the supermarket. They might well have been flown thousands of miles, had enormous pesticides and other environmental impacts. So growing your own flowers really is one of the greenest gardening activities out there. Up next, Fiona Davison, our Head of Libraries and Exhibitions, will take us into the world of the crown, letting us in on how a few green-fingered royals have influenced the way we garden in both the past and present.
4: Because kings and queens had the resources to have the best gardens, the best gardeners, and the newest plants, they've always been kind of at the front of gardening fashion. And because people wanted to keep in with the royals, it was the done thing to kind of copy whatever the king and queen had. So they were really influential in setting gardening fashion. And to explore that, we focused on three particular royal figures. So we start with Prince Albert. Now, he's a pretty important person for the RHS. He was a president of the RHS and he saved the RHS from financial ruin when we spent too much on plants. His patronage helped encourage lots of people to join the RHS and become fellows. And the style of gardening that Prince Albert's associated with was, at the time, the most modern style of gardening. And that was tender, exotic plants from all around the world that were grown under glass and then planted out in the summer months in very elaborate, kind of what was known as carpet bedding, very highly patterned and very formal, very colourful carpet beds. Prince Albert, when he married Queen Victoria, was determined that his new kingdom would be at the forefront of science and technology and art and design. The British Empire was bringing, you know, kind of into contact with lots of exotic plants from around the world. So it was quite a status symbol to grow a palm tree or to grow pelargoniums or plants that wouldn't survive the winter without a big heated greenhouse heated with the latest steam technology. So it's all about modernity. What's interesting about... Prince Albert, and in fact, all royal gardeners is then seeing how what they did with endless resources trickled down and became more accessible and adapted. So if you were rich enough, yes, you would have a steam-heated conservatory or greenhouse and your gardener would grow you, you know, these amazing tender beddings. If you were less well off, you would just buy the bedding plants from a nursery, plant them out in the summer and then they'd die, and you'd have a bear garden. But next year, you'd go to the nursery and buy others. And they also found that some of those plants they thought were tender, actually pretty hardy. So you'll see plants like yuccas arriving in British front gardens and just becoming a thing that you see normally, bringing a little bit of exoticism to suburban front gardens. So the second person we focused on, we jumped from quite a lot way forward in time to Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother. Now, she was a really keen gardener, stalwart attendant at the Chelsea Flower Show, and she was associated with very feminine... Pink, flowery, scented, quite traditional English country garden style plants. so she loved rose and lilies and magnolias and very very pink flowers, <laughs> lots of pink, but very knowledgeable gardener as well. And the garden that she's most associated personally with is the castle of Maine, Scotland. She bought a ruined castle after her husband King George died and she redeveloped the walled garden and we've got some nice stories associated with her tenure of that garden it's so windy at the castle of may it's kind of on the coast quite frequently the cabbages would literally be blown out of the ground and be rolling through the grounds like giant footballs and at wisley we're pointing the visitors at wisley towards the Bowes lion rose garden which was named after her brother it's a garden lots of us aspire to that kind of romantic country garden look and the third bringing it up to date is King Charles III, as we must now call him, and the style of gardening that he's associated with is organic and very ecologically conscious gardening. So in many ways, King Charles can be said to be way ahead of the game because he was interested in the environment and interested in conservation, and then how that translated into your style of gardening way earlier than lots of people. And I think Highgrove has been a particularly influential garden because as well as being, you know, grown on very sustainable methods, it's really beautiful. And that idea of a wildflower meadow has really caught people's imagination as something that you'd want in a garden space. What he's demonstrating, and, you know, at Highgrove, you see these beautiful pictures of this meadow, but it's a lot of work. That kind of wild garden... It's still gardening. There's been effort put in to curate this perfect mix of very wild and not highly hybridised cultivated species, but still so this care has been gone to make sure that they flower at the right time and it all looks lovely. It's like that no makeup look, as though they take forever to do. <laughs> now that gardening is something that is a kind of mass participation hobby. There's 30 million gardeners in this country. Lots of people describe themselves as gardeners. Thinking about your garden and thinking about it having a certain style and a look and feel is no longer just the preserve of an aristocratic elite who would demand that their gardeners did this, that, and the other to copy the king or the queen we're watching telly, we're reading different books, we're looking online and there's a whole host of different kind of style influences out there. It's much more varied, but I think, you know, King Charles is demonstrating there's still that kind of royal seal of approval. Plants and gardens are historic. They're part of our heritage and they're a forgotten part of our heritage. We think about built heritage and stories of important people, but, Plants have a backstory too. And I think the other thing is we forget how fragile and transitory gardens are and how much they change. They're growing, they're living, they change. So preserving something that doesn't stay still is quite an interesting kind of concept. And for all of those reasons, most of us are plant blind most of the time. It's just green stuff in the background. We're all busy A dirty great castle or a railway viaduct or, you know, some other bit of built heritage kind of grabs our attention, but I think we get a lot more out of living where we live if we open up our eyes to the plants around us and who put them there and why are they there and what are they doing? I think there's just such a lot of just fascinating stories. The world's more interesting if you know more about it.
1: That was Fiona Davison. What she shared was based on research she helped collect for Royal Roots, the inaugural temporary exhibition at the Old Laboratory at Wisley. The old lab opened to the public last week and the Royal Roots exhibition runs until May the 26th. You can find more information in our show notes if you'd like to check it out. Well, that's about it for today. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider giving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. It's the best way to help us share the love of gardening and hopefully it will mean we see more beautiful Easter bouquets full of homegrown flowers. That's all for now. So for me, Gareth Richards, goodbye and thanks for listening.
0: I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress Robotic Lawn mower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress Robotic Lawn Mower, the lawn is actually looking better.